You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage at work, at home and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard. Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. Uh, my guest today on the podcast is Seth Godin, who we had on very early in the run of the Getting the Yes And podcast. If you don't know him, he has started successful companies. He's taught millions of people and left his mark on our creative culture. He is the author of 19 international bestsellers translated into more than 35 languages. Um, He has a new book. It is called The Song of Significance, A New Manifesto for Teams. You're going to love this podcast. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Seth Godin, welcome to the podcast. What a treat. Thank you for having me. I loved your new book, and you've actually written a lot of books. Um, and this appears to be your first manifesto, so I'm curious... Using that particular term, when you've written so much, is this an inflection point? Is this because the style of the way the book was written? What made you use that particular word? Because I think you're someone who you know chooses their words carefully. I do. And it's a rant with extras. So I end up with Manifesto. It's my second one. The first one has never been published for sale called Stop Stealing Dreams. It's about education. Wow. Uh, it's been downloaded 4 million times. It, I, what happened with that one is I saw, I went in uh, fifth grade classroom to help, brought 18 hammers because that was the assignment. We need a dad or a mom who will bring in 18 hammers. And it's a long story, but basically I left heartbroken and crestfallen about the state of education. Wow. And I just typed and typed and typed and typed. And it's landed with a lot of people, but it's not a book. This is a book because mm-hmm. I want people to touch it and share it and talk about it. And I think it's a manifesto because what I'm asserting is that we're on a frontier, a revolution is happening, and we're not embracing the opportunity yet. Uh, going back to the fifth grade class, um, was that a similar framing that you came out with afterwards, which is things have changed, this needs to change, and it hasn't? Right. So, I mean, we're really lucky that we uh, were able to raise our kids in a first-class neighborhood with yep. great public schools. Yep. But they, by that in that moment, had sort of optimized for compliance and mm-hmm. obedience <laughs> and will this be on the test. And what I talk about in Song of Significance is we have been indoctrinated by the system to ask the boss, what should we do now? To give that boss power and authority as long as we don't have to take responsibility. And 
That's because humans are seen by factories as a resource, a machine to be tuned and improved, and we can't make the machines go any faster. So we're broken. And there's a whole generation of people who are coming along saying no but instead of yes and because they've been so manipulated and uh, lied to for so many years. Uh, You asked 10,000 people in 90 countries to describe the conditions at the best job they ever had. Um, And you talk about the top four. Um, One was I surprised myself with what I could accomplish. I could work independently was the second. The third was the team built something important. And the fourth was people treated me with respect. I don't see anything in there about hitting margins. Yeah, well, it's interesting when I talk to people about this, because I gave people 14 choices. Yeah. The the two that came out right next to the bottom are, I got paid a lot, and I didn't get fired. (laughs) But if we talk to bosses, they think those are the only two things that matter. Yeah. And that's where the gap is. Hmm. Um, we should probably talk about honeybees. Uh, I can talk about honeybees all day, Kelly. All right. So, um, it, it, so you, this manifesto, this is about work, but you talk about honeybees, and and th- this is not the first time I've read about honeybees lately. And but but I think you actually draw the the metaphor, uh, you know, in, in a very lovely manner. So, uh, talk, talk to us about how that ended up in the book. All right. So the back cover of the book has no blurbs on it. It says. The purpose of a beehive isn't to make honey. Honey is a byproduct of a healthy hive. And big honey, like big pharma and big farm, has tried to manipulate the bees, measuring nothing but their honey output. And that is a significant cause of colony collapse disorder, which could lead us all to die of starvation, because more than 50% of all the bee colonies in the U.S. are dying. Mm -hmm. And... What inspired me to write this book was I read a book by Jacqueline Freeman called The Song of Increase. And it's about what happens when a feral bee colony, a wild one, leaps into the unknown. And it is so similar to your work. It, yeah. And it's just now dawning on me. I mean, I read your book a long time ago, and it's fantastic. Um, but what the bees are organized without an organizer and led without a leader. The queen is not in charge of anything except laying eggs. And the queen lays a lot of eggs. But the queen doesn't lay a queen egg because there's only room for one queen. And at the end of a long winter, the maidens who actually run parts of the hive will meet and decide the hive can handle the leap. And so they'll instruct many of the bees to go out and collect as much pollen as they can. It only takes three weeks to replenish all the honey that was lost over the winter. And then... The queen has laid and fertilized a new queen egg, which means someone's got to leave. And what happens is more than 10,000 bees, including the queen, will leave the hive in a 10-minute period of time, leaping into the void. And they'll fly swarm about 100 feet, and then they only have three days to find a new place to live, or they're all going to die. And they will form a tight ball, and I call this the song of safety, where they have to maintain a body temperature, amazingly, of 98.6 degrees. And they will just hang out there while scouts go out mission-wise to try to find a new place to live. Mm -hmm. But we're not bees. So what we really seek is meaning, this song of significance, the chance to do something that matters. And one thing that we need, which uh, Second City has talked about so clearly for so long, is a foundation to stand on. 
yeah. a feeling of safety, that we're not going to leap to that tree over there if we think someone's going to pull the net out from under us. Yeah. So I had a couple thoughts with this, uh, and obviously you did too. One, of course, is sort of the improvisational idea around ensemble and the idea that you make your partner look good and all of us are better than one of us, of course. But then the other thing, and this isn't so much an improv thing as it is a Second City thing, which is I have for, because I've been in this job for decades, decades of managers and agents just saying, what are you doing not trying to hold on to Tina Fey? Stephen Colbert, Jason mm-hmm. Sudeikis, right? And you're like, but what you don't understand is that the way the ecosystem works is that they leave and make space for the next. Tina Fey would not have been Tina Fey if Gilda Radner had not left. Yeah. Or whoever. Turnover so, is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and, it's, and it's not, but it's not that turnover of like, oh, I'm leaving because it sucks. It's like, I'm leaving right. because I have completed the thing I need to do here. And then, by the way, those people exist as mentors forever to sure. that, those other kinds of generations. And it's somewhat inconceivable for certain people when they think in terms of, well, it's the industrial, uh, uh, mm-hmm. co- industrial complex that you bring up, uh, military industrial complex, which is, oh, it's an asset. Why would you let right. an asset go? Right. Well, they're hoarding because they have hoarding. a scarcity mindset. And mm-hmm. what they're trying to do is produce honey as opposed to imagine what a healthy ecosystem could be like. Yeah. And uh, what I'm talking about with turnover, I think that most companies that depend on their people for insight or leadership or possibility early in their career, like first week, should insist that every employee has a LinkedIn profile and an up-to-date resume Hmm. because they're not going to not quit their job because they feel like they have no choices. When they have choices, if they choose to stay with you, that is what you seek, enrollment, not people who are prisoners, who are captives. And when we are dancing with people who want to dance with us, of course the dancing goes better. And getting our arms around, you know, you, you, you glossed over a couple of things. You said, well, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Except most organizations don't do no. that. No. Most organizations have a Zoom meeting to take attendance to make sure you're not getting your dry cleaning. They don't have a Zoom meeting because they actually want to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. No, that's completely true. So one of the interesting things when we last spoke, um, we had just really—I just you know released yes and I, I had stepped down from day to day producing, didn't quite know what what I was going to do. And those intervening years, which are very interesting that we're talking now, mm-hmm. most of that, um, my wife and I and, and a team from Second City helped lead a pro, led a program at the University of Chicago with the Booth School of Business with Nick Epley, Richard Thaler, Islet Fishback, all these wonderful scientists, looking at behavioral science through the lens of improvisation and vice versa. And what, what we discovered very quickly and why it became such a robust partnership is things like understanding that human beings desire to be seen mm-hmm. as themselves is so crucial. And not just to things like psychological safety or growth mindset or other things that we've heard, but just in terms of like the the biggest aspects of what it means to be a human being right and then recognizing that that indeed it's a practice in order to not just sort of receive the 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 site uh, but also to, to give it to other people and, and what we have in improvisation is a thing called give and take focus that that idea of like oh there's a bunch of different skilled ways to to, to do this and and it work but it's a discipline mm-hmm. and and it's interesting reading your book which really talks so much about 
how we can reclaim that this is a unique time to reclaim our humanity in terms of what it means to work um, when when it's gone the other way sort of so so significantly and, and you're you're trying to reclaim that significance yeah exactly and like you have the same problem I do, which is I use the word significant to mean five different things, sometimes yes. in the same sentence. I'm trying hard not to do that. So let me tell you how deep the indoctrination goes. Yeah. About 15 or 20 years ago, a social scientist did a study in Rochester, New York, which apparently is one of the most typical cities in America, and asked a bunch of high school students, if you could have any of these jobs when you grew up, which one would you want? And the choices were things like president of a major university, U.S. senator, uh, head of a major corporation. And one of them, which they threw in just for kicks, was assistant to a celebrity. <laughs> and far and away, that was the number one pick. Far and away. Wow. Because we've indoctrinated kids to say, well, this is a way to be adjacent to the spotlight without being responsible for doing anything that you could be checked on. And that being near a celebrity is your goal. Well, that's just... Um, you know, uh, that rhymes with the idea of working for Disney, but not having to do anything important, just being able to tell people you work at Disney, and you're just following instructions. Hmm. And what I love about the arc of all the people who came before you and your work is what we are saying to people is you have something to say. Yeah. You don't deserve a million Instagram followers, but you have something to say. And if you can find the smallest viable audience, you can say it. I don't remember when we last talked, if I told you the story of my friend who was doing improv at Wharton. No, no. So we had a kid, a friend of our kids growing up. He was always putting on shows at our house. He was in every high school production, actor through and through. And he gets to Wharton and he tries out for the improv troupe. And there are... 10 slots, and he's ranked number 11. He doesn't get in. He's crestfallen. Yeah. I say to him, start your own improv troupe. Mm -hmm. It's not like you need equipment. Mm -hmm. It's not like you need a license. Start (laughs) your own improv troupe. No sets, no costumes, no nothing. He couldn't do it. No. He couldn't find his way to getting past the casting director. And it was heartbreaking because... The essence of what we're talking about here is if it helps somebody else, if it connects, if it's generous, we should do it, whether or not we get picked. Hmm. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, you're making something out of nothing. Yeah. That, that, that's what, what improv is. So in essence, you know, there are no barriers uh, that, that we say you see all obstacles as gifts, right? So, I mean, like, mm-hmm. like. Like, okay, and, and I look, I have the same thing. My son, who is a very good improviser, mom and dad both work at Second City their entire <laughs> lives, but he's good. He also did not get selected at Skidmore College for the improv group and and was was like, I, you know, crestfallen with that. And, and but channeled it into, well, look, I'm here to act uh, and I have plenty of opportunities to improvise. So I'm, and, you know, did his musicals, did his plays, did, did, did all that stuff. And actually, literally last week, quit his corporate job to focus full-time on being an actor. I could not be prouder. <laughs> but at some level, you know, you. where did I go wrong? Well, no, this is what I, this is what I actually said to him. What I said is, I, I do feel a little bad that your mom and dad gave you the model that you could make a living working in the theater. 
because it's not, it's not, it's not normal. There, there at Second City, there are twelve slots every year. That's it, and yeah. and they don't turn over every year. That's like you know, every couple of years, one or two come open, and and it's the only paying gig in improv that I know of, at least in the country. There's a place yeah. in Amsterdam called Boom Chicago. They pay not as much as we do, uh, but you know, it is. Right. But, but this is the thing, you know, I'm not worried. Because Nick is so talented, and he, he was doing really great at this sort of tech recruiting thing, because, in part because of his storytelling. Um, he can always go skills. back and do it later. Yeah. I mean, this is like, and he's 25. Like, right. you know, this, this is the, the, the time you do it. You write in the book, too, and this is related, I think, which is, quote, what each revolution has in common is that it is inconvenient. Yeah. That's that. This is not convenient. You going for your dreams is not convenient. But I don't know a single thing that was worth getting or worth doing, including having a kid, that was convenient. Yeah, because the obstacle is the way. Yeah. And the thing that, you know, I met Neil Armstrong once. And oh, cool. It was life-changing. The, uh, it was a secret conference in New Mexico. And I got to bring my family, which was unusual. And they hustle us out that night. It's freezing. It's like 40 degrees. Mm-hmm. And the sky is crystalline and they uh, build a big campfire and we're sitting there. And as Neil starts talking about the mission, the biggest full moon I have ever seen starts rising over his shoulder. I think there was some advanced planning involved. Yeah. And he stops and without missing a beat, he says, I was there. (laughs) And the only thing that's interesting about Neil Armstrong is that he did something that seemed impossible. If it wasn't impossible, who wants to talk to Neil Armstrong, right? That his entire career, my career, your career, the thing that gives us meaning, the thing that fills us with optimism and hope and joy and fills our days is that it's hard. Yeah. The obstacle is the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You note in the book that Amazon lost a quarter of its annual profits to turnover in 2021 um why 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 did that happen well because there's two kinds of turnover the turnover i mentioned earlier tina fey turnover we will call it is good turnover because what it says is that you've created the conditions for people to find their footing and leap forward and you will find a new person enrolled in your journey who wants to make a difference the bad kind of turnover happens at a company where half of all the warehouse injuries in the United States happened in one company that happens in a place where everyone is following you around with a stopwatch and where you are just standing in for a robot until they figure out how to build the robot. That turnover, the turnover at Amazon, where internal memos indicate that in some cities they are running out of people to hire who haven't worked at Amazon and quit already. That kind of turnover is debilitating and expensive and it's a signal. It's a signal that you're asking humans to do non-human work. And they're only doing it because it's an easy job to get and they have no options. But human beings want options and they want to do something human. And when you say to somebody, we're racing through the day, check all these boxes, they're going to get out as soon as they can. Well, I don't think it helps when you're, you know, the big boss is then flying rockets sort of to space. So that's... That's an interesting cultural thing, because it turns out Americans seem to like it when 
the person who is bullying them also demonstrates a lot of power. Okay. Because at least they get to say, well, I'm on a team of someone who's winning. Hmm. So part of the reason we see such billionaire bad behavior is that if you're going to show up in the world as a priest or a prophet, sorry, as a prophet, if you show up in the world as a prophet, somebody who has a direct connection to all this wellspring of power and insight, then the more you dance around with it, the more they like it. And I think people who have options, and unfortunately it's not enough people, but people who have options are starting to wake up and say, you know what? That person has nothing I don't have except they had a head start. Why don't you give me the conditions to make a difference instead? But it's very hard to do that when you're sort of in a position as a widget. Yeah, exactly. And when you grew up with poor health care, lousy schooling, endemic racism, a caste system, and things holding you back. And a friend of mine was just telling me this. This is off the topic, but I got to share with somebody. Go for it. Uh, they did a really well-organized study in which they had people of different economic backgrounds play Monopoly. And before the game of Monopoly, they said whispered to some people. I don't think they whispered. They said to people, you are going to get to roll the dice twice instead of once, and you get extra money every time you pass go, and you don't have to go to jail. So they told people these rules. And then at the end of the game, when they talked to someone who came from uh, less privilege, who had won, that person will say, well, of course I won. I had all those advantages. And when they talked to someone who was rich, who had won, they said, well, it was skill. I'm really good at this game. The advantage is maybe a little bit, but I won because I'm good at it. And it's that self-story that is part of the byproduct of this indoctrination. So one of the studies that we did at the University of Chicago, and actually we did it here at Second City, was we took all, uh, all the beginning improv students and we taught them all the same exercise at the same time, uh, except for half of them, we just gave the instructions to, to the exercise. And the other half, we said to them, oh, by the way, um, this is going to be uncomfortable. Just keep going. That was it. And the group that was just told that, because we videotaped the whole thing, they lasted longer. They were better at the exercise by our, you know, st standards. And they reported afterwards, like, that That felt good. What an amazing thing that you just have to offer this, what feels like the mildest sort of right. nudge. Right. Well, it's not just a nudge. No, no I, 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 mean, I regret using that term. No, no, it's a fine term. Mm -hmm. um, Sunstein, I mean, we can talk about that all day, too. But yeah. or, or Thaler's work. But what it was, was you offered them empathy mm. and so they were seen as people not as somebody who had to do this all by themselves yeah uh and i think the way that that relates to leadership in a beautiful way is when you quote ben zander uh at the boston philharmonic and he says quote the conductor of an orchestra doesn't make a sound he depends for his power on his ability to make other people powerful what a great i mean you get it immediately that right. said you understand what that is but i mean i know from my career because i have a really terrific boss right now that is exactly what he does he is he is not saying do xyz he's saying you know like you have you you can do things what do you want to do what do you want to dream of yeah I don't know if you've ever met Ben. He is a good no. friend and an extraordinary human. But he's imposing. He's tall. Mm. He wears tuxedos 
even when he doesn't need to. He's got this big head of hair. He's European, or his father was European. And Ben was a typical European orchestra conductor. And before a big concert, he was berating somebody. And she didn't show up the next day for rehearsal. Wow. And the concert was the next day. And frantically, he called her and profusely apologized for his behavior. He said, doesn't matter, I'm out. Because it's an all-volunteer orchestra. And I'm out, I'm not coming. And Ben had a spectacular shift in his perspective about enrollment. No one has to play in your orchestra. His job is to get people to bring what they want to bring, not out of fear, but out of joy and out of possibility, to the performance. He needs to create the conditions for that to happen. And the European mindset of throwing batons at people and berating them, right? Like, what's the difference? I don't know who the joke is about. Tchaikovsky. What's the difference between Tchaikovsky and God? God doesn't think he's Tchaikovsky. <laughs> right. I mean, I... Like, when you said the story, immediately, I remember yelling at a group. I remember Dan Backadall, who's an actor you might have seen on Veep and, and a bunch of other shows, storming to my office, furious, just like, you should not, you can't talk to people like that. And, and me sort of, like, taking that beat of, like, you know, because you're startled, and you want to be defensive, of course. But when I was able to take a beat, and I remembered, I remember, and she was not my wife when I asked her for advice, but my, my now wife, Anne, when I got the position of, of producer at Second City, I go, what's the one piece of advice you would give me? And she said, when you make a mistake, say you're sorry. Yeah. And I did. And I did it to every single person in that ensemble. And I luckily, I, you know, he, he, he didn't leave. Uh, he stayed for the show the next day, but it could have been the, the other way. And I think that's the other thing to recognize with people. It's like, you're going to make the mistake. The, the, we're all making the errors. The, the idea is this: you have the resiliency to sort of make it through. And by the way, those errors can be the kind of gifts that we're talking about that lead you to, you know, a great insight, a, a change. The, all of that is available to you. Because it's all flawed. We're all flawed. There, there is no perfection. Right. And so we're not here to talk about shipping junk because that's right. not an option. Right. But Herbie Hancock tells the story of early in the days of the quintet when Miles Davis was at the top of the world. Herbie was 24 years old. He's on stage at a big event. And they're playing uh, a track from uh, Kind of Blue, So What? Mm -hmm. And Herbie's got his piano thing and he's setting up Miles to do his solo. And the last note, Herbie loses track and plays just a clunker of a chord. And he's singing to himself, I've ruined the whole concert. I'm going to get fired. I screwed up. This is incompetence. This is amateurish. And he watches Miles in real time turn his solo upside down so that that note was the perfect note to lead to his solo. Not a mistake. And after the concert, he went to Miles and he apologized. And he said, I'm sorry, I played it wrong. Hmm. And Miles, I can't do the Miles imitation that Herbie does, but Miles says, you didn't do it wrong. You just played a note. And I took it and I did something with it. And this idea of yes and informs so much of the human connection that we are looking for. On the other hand, and one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is relentlessly criticize the work but never criticize the worker. Yeah. That what we have is the chance to raise our standards as we work together as humans, not to lower them. And this is what's missing from so much of the anti-capitalism talk, which is to say, we need to just take 
get rid of all of this and go only to work when you feel like etc no if you're here to help somebody and you're here to make a change demand higher standards and then exceed them don't say well i'm just a person you should settle because you're better than that right right right. uh one of colbert's favorite improv phrases and it comes from the uh teacher director rick thomas and alum of second city is you need to fall into the crack in the game so whatever game is going on, because the audience sees it, the mistake that got made, and one of you on stage sees it. And, you know, you could get that easy laugh by, you know, making fun of the mistake. But instead, if you see, seize as an opportunity to go with it, exactly. everyone recognizes it's magic. It's a yeah. magic moment. Exactly. Um, but, but also, I cannot think of more ruthless perfectionists than Stephen Colbert. So it is... It, it feels like it might be contradictory, and it is not. It is both in the moment, sort of playing and, and supporting and doing all that, and then, frankly, going back and looking at game tape, because that they, we tape all the improv sets. He would look, look at those and look at those and look at those, and what did I do and what not, so I can go back and, and, and do the work again. So, I don't know. It, it is, and I think it's the what's at the heart of this this book, with, which is we got to reframe. Like, like the, the the we have a st- um, uh, Annie Murphy Paul talks a lot about this in terms of the bad metaphors we've got for various things, and and we have a lot of bad metaphors for how we work and for how things are set up, and so how we break that, how we break that frame as a way to then you know have the kind of revolution you're talking about, which is itself is not going to be easy. So what you've highlighted that's so important is the fork in the road. If you see a fork, you should take it. Um, One side says, there's a system. I refuse to acknowledge it or change it, so I'm going to work as hard as I can, fingers to the bone, until I'm a nub of my former self, and then I'll be dead. Or you can say, real possibility is in redefining the system itself, seeing the system, realizing that we are a fish in water, and then deciding we'd like to spend some time building filters or other things to make the water cleaner. And most people are still in the first category. They are racing to the bottom, spamming their way, hustling their way, hassling their way to a small payday, as opposed to this magic golden opportunity of the, you know, there's blue sky right over there. It's inconvenient to get there, but it's available. So you, I know you talked to a lot of organizations, um, and this is a book that, I mean, really, I know you're speaking to all of us, but at the end of the day, if the leaders don't listen to this, <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be hard. And that's OK. I mean, I mean, you talked about the revolution, right? I mean, that, 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 that could you know happen as well. But I'm curious in the early stages of this, you know, going out and talking about this, what is the reaction to a leader in an organization to this song of significance? Okay, so I got to do semantics for one second, and then I'll go back to what we're getting. Managers are not leaders. Right. Managers use power and authority to get people to do what they want faster and cheaper. We need them. If you've ever been on an airline or, you know, bought something from a packaged goods company, you want it to be exactly what they said it was going to be. That's right. I'm not dissing managers, but they're not leaders. Mm -hmm. So if not one manager reads this, talks about this, or gets it, I'm fine. Yep. Leaders hear this and they say, thank you finally for codifying the playbook that I need to talk to my people about because leaders have to undo all the indoctrination. They show up to their team and they say, I'm going to lead. And the team goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they go back to phoning it in because that's what they've heard before. 
So the commitments need to be things like, I promise not to waste your time by calling a meeting that doesn't need to be a meeting. And you promise when I ask a question to answer it. Can't have it both ways. You can't have this passive I'm leaning back thing and also insist that we don't have meetings because you right they, they got to be we got to shift things. So I made a list of mutual commitments and that's what I built with the team at the Carbon Almanac. 300 people, most of whom I never met. We never had one all hands meeting. We built a 97,000 word almanac with not one significant error in five months with all volunteers because we created a different deal with people. Mm -hmm. And basically, we were able to say as a community, this is how we do things around here. And if it's not working for you, please, with our best wishes, be gone. But this is how we do things around here. This is what we are expecting. If you tell me you're going to do the graph on page three by Tuesday, you have to do the graph on page three by Tuesday. If you don't say you're going to do a graph, you don't get to work on the project. Go find something to do. Tell us what you're going to do. And then we'll make it better. And there was no hierarchy. There was simply organized without an organizer, led without a leader, because we needed to build a system that created this thing. And that's the way so many organizations going forward are going to have to exist. And when you say this is how this is how we do things around here, that's culture. That's Correct. when people talk about, right? <laughs> it doesn't need to be more complicated than that. That's Correct. culture. And you guys have been doing that forever, right? That yeah. you, you're not allowed to show up at, at an improv troupe and say, where are the scripts? I need a script. Nope. That's not how we do things around here. No, and, and you also need to show up, uh, you know, uh, half hour before call. And you have a, a specific, and this is the thing I love about the book, well, a specific stage manager who will go backstage and say 10 minutes and you say, thank you, 10. It is that particular to go do this thing that is made up often. And one of the things I love about the book is uh, Ron Heifetz at Harvard talks about his this leadership metaphor of being able to be on, on the dance floor and in the balcony and the go, going back and forth. And you have that in terms of calling for this like massive sort of change in how we look at things. And then you write in the book something like, quote, show me your agenda for today and I'll show you what you value. That is the smashing together of those two things. Yeah. What is, you know, for me, my list this is the things that I'm doing today. And when you look through my scribbles, I think you're going to get a pretty good idea of, of what I value. And it is going to be everything from we have to talk better to each other uh, to how do we create systems in which we can be as nimble as we were in the 90s when we did this thing. Yeah. I mean, are you working in the business or on the business? And yeah. it's pretty clear that leaders have to work on the business, whether it's a nonprofit or, or a for-profit. But we get so hung up on, oh, I answered three more emails. I satisfied two customer complaints. I got my date. It was good. No, it wasn't because the system didn't change. Um, I did not prep you for my last question, in part because the invite came from you. So let me explain this and sort of see, see where it goes. But I trust you. I think you're a good improviser. So when you were on the podcast last, we always asked the guest uh, for a yes and story. So you actually gave that to us last time you were on. When we first started this initiative at the University of Chicago, the scientists uh, said to us, show us like one of your premier exercises. So we did the yes and exercise, classic exercise. And then they asked a question, which was, well, what happens when you can't yes and the person across from you, when you fundamentally disagree, but you need to keep working with this person, what do you do? 
we didn't know and they didn't know. And so they went back and looked at literature. We went back and sort of in our improv uh, lab, uh, played around with some ideas. And the paper's coming out next year, but we, we kind of cracked the code. And so when you're doing the yes and exercise, literally you have people saying no to each other, saying yes but, and then saying yes and, and you see what the progression is. So we found a fourth pillar for when, when one disagrees, and that is thank you because. So you thank the person for the information that you don't agree with. So it sets off a gratitude part of the brain. They're not in fight or flight. And the because is you find anything, doesn't matter how small, that you agree with and what they said. And it could be as simple as like you're passionate about this idea. It could be as simple as like I, I admire your conviction. Uh, I use uh, the example I often use is when my daughter got sick, um, she had a friend whose parents were anti-vax. And this is well before that became fashionable. And so I had to quickly think of my feet, and I tried it, and I said, thank you, because you care for your daughter so much, you don't want her hurt by vaccines. I care for my daughter so much, I don't want her hurt by someone who's unvaccinated. We were good. The kids text, FaceTime, all that stuff. So I wonder if you think, and I'm putting you on the spot, but do you have a moment in your life or work where you had to sort of employ a thank you because? You were in this sort of like, I don't know if I'm on with this, but what happens if I try to you know, uh, 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 choose curiosity over blame, that sort of thing. Uh, I have two parts to my answer to that. And I think, I think your codification, no surprise, is brilliant. Uh, my first part comes probably from Pema Chodron. I don't think I could tell you where it came from in her body of work, which is sometimes improv happens in real time and face-to-face, and sometimes it happens l'esprit d'escalier, a week later, a month later. And you're building up trauma because you're under stress, because you want to do two things. You want to go back and tell that person off, but you want to maintain a relationship. So what we need to say to ourselves, which I find myself doing all the time, more than ever, is that idea of because. That thank you for showing me who you are. That took guts. That was really... Uh, kind of you. That was important that you not conceal that, right? Because then I have a chance to find new footing for me and for you. And so the person who cut you off in traffic, you have no idea if they're racing to get to the hospital before before their dad dies from chemotherapy treatment, Right. right? And knowing what someone's narrative is deserves that idea of thank you. And one of the things that I find, my wife has the biggest gluten-free bakery uh, of its kind in the world, Mm. is if a customer comes to them, they already have food anxiety. They're going out of their way to buy food without gluten in it. If they're complaining, the only way forward is not to persuade them that they are wrong Mm because it's their emotion, right? And when we can at least agree that there's a dead raccoon on the street in front of both of us. Now we can deal with the dead raccoon. Yeah. And so I have found over and over again, whether it's getting pulled over for you know, a traffic ticket or dealing with somebody who wants to be a troll, um, you can engage or not engage, but those are choices that lead to other outcomes, and you can decide which outcomes you want. Love it. I don't know called, if I answered your question, but that's... Yeah, I think, I think you did. Uh, the book is called The Song of Significance, A New Manifesto for Team. Seth Godin, thank you for coming on the pod. 
What a treat. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Keep making a ruckus. Getting the Yes Hand is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Ben Anderson from WGN, and we get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive.